Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Hello everyone, I'm Hayley McGregor and I'm a clinically trained medical anthropologist working at the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex in Brighton. I wish I could be with you in person at King's today and it's ironic given the topic of my lecture that it's a pandemic that's preventing that. Today I'm going to speak to you about the complex context in which epidemics play out and the responses to them both from global or, or state institutions, but also from civil society organizations, networks and, and people on the ground. I'll be drawing on my experience of working on and in epidemics. And to me, this goes back quite a long way. I trained as a medical doctor in South Africa in the 1990s when the HIV epidemic was um, really prevalent um, with devastating effects across the continent an event that has also in the longer term transformed healthcare there over subsequent decades. As a medical anthropologist, I've done ethnographic research on mental ill health and also on the transition to HIV as a chronic condition in South Africa and the work of HIV lay counselors. More recently, I've worked in interdisciplinary consortia on zoonotic disease spillover in Africa and in Southeast Asia and on Zika virus in Brazil. For the past two years, I've co-led a Wellcome Trust funded project which explores concepts and practices of pandemic preparedness with a focus on East and West Africa. So many of, of the insights I will share today come from this collaborative work and indeed um, are rooted in the work of our epidemics group at the Institute of Development Studies, which was first established as past, part of the ESRC funded STEP Centre. So I thus really need to start by acknowledging my colleagues, in particular all the researchers in the Pandemic Preparedness Project and also my colleagues Ian Schoons, Melissa Leach and Annie Wilkinson. So this week has actually marked um, a year since the stringent lockdown in Wuhan. I'm, I'm speaking at the end of January and to stem this, and this lockdown was really to stem, try and contain the spread of a novel coronavirus in China. And at the time we watched in shock from a distance as millions of people had their liberties severely curtailed. And indeed the Chinese state erected an entire hospital in record time. And over the past year, we've seen the unfolding of COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic, and it has repeatedly shown that what we have witnessed is more than a health crisis. The pandemic has manifested as intersecting crises across areas of health, education, the economy, social care, and so forth. And around the world, we've seen different configurations of public health measures play out in varied social, economic, religious and cultural settings, places characterized by very varied state citizen relations and, and levels of trust in government. 
The impacts have been diverse across contexts. We've also seen how unpredictability and uncertainty are ongoing as new viral variants now emerge with questions about immune evasion, transmissibility, virulence, etc. Obviously, in the past year, epidemics have been much discussed and views have proliferated. And the topic of epidemic preparedness and response is now discussed beyond scholars in global health like myself, and these debates have very much entered the public domain. And many of you listening could probably quite comfortably debate um, responses in the UK context at the very least. Um, you will also appreciate after these months of near solid coverage of the current pandemic that the questions raised by epidemics can be approached from distinctive disciplinary perspectives. And so in order to set your expectations, I should just emphasize that I speak as a medical anthropologist, hence the title of my talk and the focus on complex contexts in which epidemics play out and the variety of responses. Finally, just to um, say a word about the overarching theme of these lectures on leadership. This really speaks to the varied experience of COVID-19 and some of the challenges that um, have arisen, and that's the kinds of issues that leaders are having to weigh up in making difficult decisions about responses. And I'll return to this question in conclusion. But I would like to suggest in this lecture that there is value in thinking about post-pandemic transformations, particularly in approaches to epidemic preparedness and response, um, and that a greater acknowledgement of the complex social, economic, cultural, and political context in which pandemics unfold and in which responses play out is quite central to any such endeavor to rethinking preparedness and response. Firstly, I'm going to talk about some of the features of standard approaches to um, epidemic preparedness and response. So in recent years, this idea of epidemic preparedness has really come to the fore in global health discourse and practice, and it's been instantiated in particular strategies and institutional architectures. So international agencies, such as the World Health Organization, have focused on early warning and surveillance systems, standardized guidance, scenario planning, priority pathogen roadmaps, and joint evaluation exercises, or JEEs, which are for readiness assessments of um, epidemic preparedness in countries. And bolstered by the experience of the um, 2013 to 16 West Africa Ebola epidemic, there have been meetings and plans, such as, for example, the World Health Organization's 2017 Strategic Framework for Emergency Preparedness, and also the 2016 Research and Development Blueprint for Action to Prevent um, Epidemics. And it elaborates this particular approach. Um, there have been calls for additional funding for preparedness efforts, such as through the the Commission on Global Health Risk Framework in 2016. And there's also been effort to strengthen rule-based governance um, by updating the international health regulations, for example. And these formal institutional architectures and mechanisms for preparedness link to epidemic response through what are called operational pillars. And these include elements such as um, early detection or indeed 
um, risk communication and community engagement, which I'll return to later. Um, and the other feature is a, an imagination of levels of, of operation from the global right down to regional, national and, and local efforts. So in 2016, there was a reorganization of the WHO and um, the strengthening of a health emergencies program. And this resulted in further elaboration of a, of a understanding of a phased epidemic emergency cycle from preparedness through phases of early warning response and recovery. And in this kind of plan, response is then envisaged as emanating largely from centralized system of command and control planning, for example, to contain a disease outbreak through these progressive temporal stages. So what one sees with this approach is that it inscribes a particular emergency temporality with attention to the specific health crisis. And it's also been pointed out that these plans are situated within what we could call a global health security paradigm. Um, and that means in the case of epidemics, um, an exceptional focus on one pathogen in response. So there have been various social science critiques of these approaches and indeed also calls for more involvement of social scientists across all these operational pillars of um, health emergencies. And I'm going to take you through um, the foremost points of critique that have, have come from social science. And I'm going to do that with reference to a range of examples of um, social science research from recent um, epidemics. So first of all, social scientists have unpacked the framings and assumptions underpinning the notion of epidemic preparedness. So um, in fact, this has been done by Carlos Condouf at King's, but um, Andrew Lakoff also has characterized preparedness as instilling what he calls an anticipatory imagination to respond to future events and prioritize particular predictive technologies um, to manage disease outbreaks, such as surveillance or, or epidemic modeling. In terms of the framings, there's also been quite a bit of attention to um, how particular responses deal with uncertainty. So Andy Sterling and Ian Schoons have argued that conventional disease control strategies tend to ignore uncertainties, in other words, where the outcomes are unknown, and prefer to conceptualize these as risks that can be managed through technologies such as surveillance. And they argue that in reality, epidemics tend to be characterized by many uncertainties and that new uncertainties emerge as diseases unfold and indeed as people in turn respond to the situation in unexpected ways and indeed we've seen this with SARS-CoV-2 which as you know has emerged as a novel virus and is still surrounded by many uncertainties and they propose a, a particular set of, of institutional responses that take account of, of this kind of inevitable uncertainty. 
The second area where there's been quite a lot of social science research and critique relates to the whole area of knowledge and evidence. And there's been much discussion of the heavy reliance in standard um, disease control approaches on certain kinds of evidence and expertise, particularly in preparing for and responding to epidemics, such as um, expertise from epidemiology and, and mathematical modeling. And there have been calls for greater interdisciplinarity in science policy advice, as you've probably picked up in the debates in the UK with respect to the constitution of SAGE and people arguing that there's limited um, range of disciplines involved in, in this um, scientific advisory group for emergencies and especially at the outset of the COVID response in the UK. But in addition, there's an argument also that um, past experience of epidemics shows that what is needed is a, is a greater plurality of knowledge and that this becomes relevant to consider in epidemic response. So what, what do I mean by this? So take, for example, the case of Nipah virus. Now, many of you have probably never heard of this virus. It's a a very rare um, viral encephalitis that was first identified in Malaysia in the late 1990s. But I want to talk about the second emergence of the disease, which was in rural Bangladesh in the early 2000s. And this constituted quite an interesting epidemiological puzzle as the disease had not only popped up in a sort of new geographic location in Bangladesh, but it also seemed to have um, followed a different transmission pathway to the Malaysian example. And there was a really interesting investigation interdisciplinary by um, biologists, also epidemiologists and anthropologists. And this joint investigation revealed that in this instance, the virus was passing to humans through consumption of raw date palm sap, which was actually collected as part of local livelihood strategies. And um, what emerged from the investigation was that the bats were likely feeding from the, the collection baskets, baskets that were set up to, to um, harvest the sap. At night, the bats would come and feed, and the virus was then entering the sap through the bat saliva and, and indeed urine. But interestingly, obviously, this was an, a new um, this, uh, disease. Local people had never experienced this disease, even though they'd been drinking date palm sap for a very long time. And they were quite skeptical of this biomedical understanding of, of the etiology of, of the Nipah virus encephalitis. And they had a different understanding of the etiology that was linked to local religious beliefs. Um, and it required very careful investigation and dialogue by anthropologists to, to um, come to an understanding of, of um, the local beliefs about this new illness, and then to create a dialogue between these biomedical understandings and um, the local understandings. And this actually led to a very interesting example where through dialogue engagement, um, people were able to devise strategies to intervene to um, mitigate the risk of, of, of um, the disease being um, passed on to humans by in particular sort of working with local people to, to um, devise woven covers to protect the sap in the, in the baskets from um, 
fat um, urine in particular, but that could still maintain the sap collection as an important local livelihood. And they also um, worked with local people to um, think about ways of caring for the sick that would reduce the transmission of illness. So this kind of endeavor um, is really important in um, disease response. And indeed, a further example is provided by the West African um, Ebola outbreak that started in 2013 that I mentioned earlier. And here, anthropological research revealed that, in fact, in this instance, local people actually mobilized to protect their, their villages um, independent of, of government or external efforts. And here they were drawing on, on what they were hearing from the radio, but also their existing experience of um, disease outbreaks and adapting that experience to um, attempt safe burial of, of people with, who died of Ebola and indeed um, forms of care that still um, were in accordance with ethics of, of kinship and care. And all of this suggests that relying only on what one might call sort of top-down measures um, led by governments or external agencies is, is not the only way to, to um, go about response. And indeed, it's not the only form of response. And in fact, if levels of trust in government are low in certain areas, as was the case in parts of Sierra Leone during that Ebola outbreak, um, partly due to people's prior experience of, of government um, intervention, people might actually look to or rely on other forms of public authority locally that might have more salience. And that might include forms of informal public authority that might be present, such as in Sierra Leone, the, the secret societies that are prevalent. And similarly, other research during the West Africa Ebola outbreak pointed clearly to the, to the need to take account also of, of local understanding so that rumours um, that were circulating about Ebola were, should not just be considered as ignorance or misinformation, but should be seen as rooted in people's um, anxieties and the sources of a distrust in government and indeed experiences of past interventions such as um, interventions by foreign powers during the civil war. So the third area I wanted to explore is interesting because it relates to social science perspectives and how these might inform understandings, particularly of social context as an aspect to consider when planning an outbreak response in an epidemic. And the West African Ebola outbreak provided an interesting opportunity um, to argue for greater attention to social science perspectives and that these should be included in outbreak response. And in particular, the idea of the social context um, came into view as something that was important to consider. And this included um, cultural logics and understandings, vulnerabilities, aspects of social difference, histories, um, and indeed political economies. And at the Institute of Development Studies, where I work, we've in fact been part of, of this push through a collaboration with agencies such as UNICEF in creating what we call the Social Science and Humanitarian Action Platform. But our experience working here and indeed also engaging with, with other agencies is that there is still a tendency during emergency response to confine um, interest in social context to one particular operational pillar related to what's called risk communication and community engagement. 
this can in fact lead to inadvertently to quite an instrumental use of um, social science um, data. Um, for example, um, this can be the um, findings from um, social science inquiry um, in outbreaks or indeed from syntheses of existing social science research in areas where outbreak occur can then be seen as a, as a sort of a means to inform how to do a more top-down messaging um, and this idea that, that one needs to dispel misinformation. And this is, is in contrast to trying to use social science perspectives to understand, for example, the wider power relations and circumstances that make um, local responses to disease quite um, complex. And the danger is, is really that social context as a sort of thing becomes reified as another form of uncertainty that can then be controlled through strategies such as risk communication and community engagement. And, and this is quite important to, to sort of understand here because the example of the recent Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo really illustrates the complexity of local contexts and, and that sometimes these cannot just be sort of managed and dealt with by top-down efforts at risk communication and community engagement and indeed in DRC we've seen a real push to, to use more nuanced um, methods and the ongoing conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo has really created a situation over this period of, of that Ebola outbreak where there are very complex and difficult power relations, particularly related to local um, militias who command authority. And indeed, um, there's also been research that's shown how an Ebola economy developed related particularly to the influx of external resources in, a, in, a very, in an area that's very um, limited in terms of opportunities for for um, livelihood and economy and this Ebola economy related in particular to these epidemic control resources has then further complicated response efforts and what's really evident in this situation is that new uncertainties actually arise as a result of, of formal and informal responses to disease control and, and um, it really points to limitations also in understanding so-called communities as sort of homogeneous entities that need to be acted upon um, to in um, disease um, control efforts and it really points to the fact that responses are required that are more nuanced in terms of their understanding of, of power relations locally and indeed um, understandings of different forms of authority and efforts that really rely on, on creating um, dialogue in these settings with different constituencies um, within um, the areas where, where outbreaks are occurring. So the fourth area I think for understanding outbreaks and where social science perspectives have, have really un, um, added to understanding of, of context is work on the political economy of, of um, infectious diseases. And the critique here of, of your sort of emergency event um, outbreak responses is that a focus on the emergency event in isolation can in fact obscure um, sort of longer term um, resource limitations, for example, in health system responses and capacities. And with respect to the health system, um, Paul Farmer 
actually uh, made the comment during the Ebola outbreak um, in West Africa that unless one had what he called the staff stuff face and systems um, for a meaningful response that in fact the emergency efforts um, were very difficult to to um, make that make those emergency efforts um, successful and a, a further um, critique, in fact, from Vincent Nguyen at the time, was that a focus on, on global systems might also misdirect attention and resources from what might be more pressing priorities of people who are, are considered vulnerable um, to outbreaks. And this issue of competing priorities, I think, is really important to consider. And indeed, that has come up again with the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo that I mentioned just a minute ago, where researchers showed that at the same time as the Ebola outbreak, people were also dealing with um, outbreaks of, of measles and other sort of chronic um, health problems. So these, what man might call slow emergencies, are, are, are very much also present in people's lives. And these might not only relate to health threats or events, but also other events related to climate or, or conflict or livelihoods. And this really points to, going back to pharma, the importance of, of, of sort of perspective of structural violence and indeed long-standing health and other inequalities. And this really came out also in um, research on, on the Zika virus, um, outbreak in, in Brazil, where it was really evident that, that different um, people were experiencing this epidemic in different ways. And in particularly here, where, where Zika were obviously particularly affected um, pregnant women, it was women living particularly in low-income informal settlements where there was it was very difficult to create the kind of circumstances to address the, the the um, breeding of mosquitoes who were um, passing on the viruses in this instance. And indeed, these women were um, less likely to be able to access abortion in very restrictive um, legal circumstances in Brazil. And they were also, um, would also find it more difficult, in fact, to, to um, respond to the circumstances of having a child um, with um, Zika virus um, syndrome. So the importance of really understanding there what are sort of these long-standing long structural inequalities. And indeed, there are other more neglected outbreaks, and um, cholera comes to mind, where this perspective is, is really um, important um, to take in mind. And um, indeed, um, if one looks back to a, an epidemic that emerged in the 1980s and that was really affecting Africa in the 1990s, in other words, the HIV epidemic, this is quite an interesting example where the, the health inequalities and the sort of social determinants of, of health that were so evident in terms of who was affected by this, this condition were actually taken up as, as people mobilized and um, for example, in, in South Africa, where um, the state had not provided access to the new antiretroviral therapies, um, people actually mobilized. So there we have an example of response on the ground, which was, was an activist response. And, and organizations such as the Treatment Action Campaign used legal challenges to get to argue for access to antiretrovirals. And indeed, 
um, activism in, in Brazil and South Africa and across the globe also addressed issues such as um, intellectual property and generic pricing of, of drugs and the sharing of, of um, that intellectual property globally to get cost-effective um, or, or affordable antiretrovirals made available to areas of the world where the epidemic was, was most severe. So I'm now going to talk, turn to speak about COVID-19 with particular focus on the experience of COVID-19 across 2020 in African settings. I'm focusing on the African situation because this is where I'm involved in research um, and also because analysis of the African experience offers pertinent illustration of the points that I've just been laying out to you. So in particular, I'm going to lift out a framing of the COVID-19 pandemic as one of intersecting crises, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, following Daula. So there's a health crisis, but there are also crises of economies, education, livelihoods, social care, and so forth. And some of these are ongoing and related to particular political and economic forms of power in countries. We've seen how the pandemic has catalyzed severe and really wide-ranging challenges in many countries and intensified pre-existing inequalities, as has been laid out this week in a report from Oxfam. And we've seen in the UK, for example, how policies of austerity and across several sectors and indeed a rationalisation in the NHS has contributed to the UK being so hard hit by COVID-19. So thinking about Africa in rural areas and also in informal settlements, there are people living with everyday uncertainties and threats of various kinds and in circumstances characterized by precarity and with competing priorities related to climate conflict, food security and livelihoods. So these acute threats, as well as the slow emergencies I mentioned earlier following Ben Anderson, are what people have to navigate alongside COVID-19. And these circumstances really pose challenges for conventional approaches to epidemic preparedness and response. And I hope to illustrate this for you. So in describing the experience of the epidemic in African settings, I'm drawing on research that I co-lead. It's done as part of the Wellcome Trust Collaborative Award focused on pandemic preparedness. We actually started this project two years ago um, after the West African Ebola outbreak. And in this project, we've been exploring the idea of preparedness from below. In other words, thinking about how people draw on responses to everyday threats and uncertainties and what forms of formal and informal public authority are trusted to act. And we've done field work in rural Uganda and rural Sierra Leone, both with past experiences of um, Ebola. And over this past year, this research has swiveled to COVID-19 as, as a major focus. So with the emergence of coronavirus um, at the beginning of last year, officially, there were anxious predictions of the devastation that a pandemic could wreak in Africa. And this was given that the World Health Organization had conducted joint evaluation exercises, and these had consistently assessed all African countries as unprepared 
despite um, health system investment post Ebola and indeed the establishment of the African Centers for Disease Control in 2017 with a remit to strengthen um, science networks and um, laboratory capacity. And indeed, um, at the beginning of last year, there were various epidemiological modeling exercises and these predicted many COVID deaths in Africa. And African countries adopted border control measures very early with swift responses, indeed whilst identified cases of COVID-19 remained low and this involved border airport quarantine and, border and other forms of border control. And in some instances, very stringent lockdowns with movement restrictions were also implemented early. And what followed was actually a, a very slow and heterogeneous unfolding of COVID-19 with peaks in a few countries, pockets of infection in others, and some countries actually spared with very low official mortality. And indeed, this low mortality seemed verifiable despite very limited levels of testing or um, of death registration in some settings. And this unfolding picture really challenged this notion from your standard approaches that I was explaining earlier of a very sort of linear temporality to an outbreak with these set phases from preparedness through to response. And I'm sure you're all aware from much media and, and scientific coverage that this early African success has been linked to many factors, some of them still um, under investigation, such as demography, a, a long, young population, and indeed a, a, a large proportion of people living in rural areas and in sort of sparsely populated areas, but also um, factors such as climate, which is being investigated, and also the idea of cross immunity from previous infections with other um, pathogens. But WHO and the Africa Centers for Disease Control have also pointed to this decisive action and to African leadership and collaboration in joint platforms, for example, for procurement of PPE or um, vaccine involvement in vaccine trials. And they've also pointed to the existing experience in many countries of managing infectious disease outbreaks. And indeed, um, the sort of general lack of recognition of African success with respect to COVID-19 response and the predictable reluctance of countries in the global north to look to African experience has actually been seen as further evidence of the need to decolonize the gaze of, of global health. And since the last quarter of 2020, several countries in Africa have come into the grips of a second wave of COVID-19, which is, of course, proving much more challenging. But there are also some further caveats to a wholly positive view of the African experience of COVID preparedness and response, which I'm going to briefly point to now. So in addition to the situation of a second wave, there are also some further caveats to a wholly positive view of the African experience of COVID preparedness and response, which I'll briefly point to now. So firstly, the socioeconomic impacts of responses have been severe and have intensified inequalities, especially given the high reliance on the informal economy for livelihoods and on markets for food. 
And I'll give you a picture from the two rural field sites in our um, pandemic preparedness project. And this is field work done by colleagues, Moses Beluku and Fode Kamara in Uganda and Sierra Leone respectively. So for most of 2020, there was little experience of COVID-19 as a disease that was seen in either of the two um, fieldwork villages. It remained a, a disease of the radio, people spoke of it as a foreign disease, and um, ours is Ebola, um, people said. However, movement restrictions limited access to, to fields where people needed to cultivate, and people could not sell wares in the market or indeed their produce in the market. And in addition, in both countries, people um, have spoken of the rising food prices, so the general economic fallout of COVID-19. In the Ugandan village, farmers um, inevitably then, as time went on, they resorted to bribing authorities to cross um, the river in this instance to the Democratic Republic of Congo to cultivate their fields, because this is a district on the border between Uganda and, and DRC. Um, so you saw them sort of taking matters into their own hands to try and preserve their, their livelihoods. And in Sierra Leone, um, a situation arose in the, in the district where market traders opened um, the market on their own authority prior to the government lifting restrictions in, in June. And this was in the hungry season when they really needed to also be purchasing food. And in Uganda, resurgence also of Ebola across the border in neighboring DRC was, was another competing worry, as well as um, severe floods, which um, also posed a more, more imminent threat. And so rather than the preparedness from below that I mentioned earlier as had been analyzed for um, the responses of villages against the Ebola epidemic, what we've seen in this field work related to COVID-19 is that in both of these rural field sites, people are, are faced with the impacts of the public health restrictions more than being faced by the threat of, of the disease, COVID-19 itself. And we've characterized the situation as a negotiation of these intersecting precarities. And apart from the economic effects and livelihood impacts, as I've just um, spoken about, they've also been indirect health impacts and we've sort of seen the effects of a, a very vertical emphasis on one disease, COVID-19, and, and that this has been detrimental over the longer term as the pandemic has continued, or the restrictions at least have continued, this has been detrimental to treatment for other conditions, for example, HIV or TB in, in um, a country like, like Uganda. Um, they've also been accounts of, of um, difficulties with childhood immunization, um, concerns about the impact on, on malnutrition, particularly in children, and indeed on, on other elements like um, sexual reproductive health and mental health. So the second caveat I wanted to speak about in, in relation to the African experience and, and sort of just viewing it as a success relates to politicization of the pandemic response. And, this has, of course, been evident across the world in different forms. It's, it's been written about quite a bit in the past year. Um, so it's not only been evident in Africa, but there have been marked instances on the continent. And, and again, with respect to our research, um, Uganda has been such a, 
example where people in the rural field site have had to endure a sometimes violent, violent military presence enforcing COVID-19 measures. And these villages have linked COVID-19 restrictions explicitly to government control related to elections and a wider closing of civic space. And thirdly, one cannot ignore the, the resource limitations across the continent and particularly in health systems responses and really the lack of capacity for response. And this is particularly evident now in the second wave, as you're probably aware from recent media reports from Africa and indeed in South Africa, uh, sort of health system I know very well, um, one's really seen this political economy of health in that place, which is of course a legacy still of the apartheid era, and it's you've one seen that playing out very starkly as death has surged, in particular in the public health sector, and um, related also to a new, more infectious variant. But across the continent, it's also been the case that limitations in testing capacity have made it very difficult to know the epidemic, to get a clear picture of what is going on, and you know what what are the numbers of new cases? What is the the what does the serology say about population exposure and so forth? And um, indeed, this is as the country as the continent now is in the grips of a second wave. We've seen a shifting focus to vaccine preparedness and the difficulties in vaccine supply to Africa are rightly drawing attention and comparisons to the delayed um, access indeed to antiretroviral therapy at the height of the HIV epidemic. Um, and John Nkengason, the director of the Africa Center for Centers for Disease Control has pointed to this, don't let Africa be left behind um, again. But the focus on vaccine supply also deflects somewhat from many other challenges that a large vaccine rollout is, is likely to face um, in an African setting. So in the last section, I've focused on speaking about the African experience of COVID-19, but I'm sure you're aware that there have, of course, been other examples of success, but also multiple failures of response. And the trajectory of the epidemic into 2021 remains very uncertain. But for Africa, the overall mortality remains low in terms of its proportion of the global population. Um, officially, at the end of January, 88,000 um, deaths officially, according to the WHO. And we're all very aware that this week, the um, UK reached 100,000 deaths. And indeed, the very country scoring highly in 2019's Global Health Security Index, namely the US and the UK, have by most assessments ranked as amongst the most poorly performing. Arguably, the recent focus now on the unpredictable behavior of the virus in mutating and evading vaccines is creating possibilities for deflecting attention from the politics and assessments of failures. So it offers a convenient depoliticization by focusing on the seemingly neutral epidemiology and the hope of a technology in providing a, a complete solution to the pandemic situation. So what questions then 
arise from this picture for um, epidemic preparedness and, and response? So I think they're questions about the proportionality of measures. So COVID-19, looking across the globe, has raised some troubling questions for um, public health practitioners about the balance between health and human rights, um, or indeed the balance with economic well-being, um, how to ensure ethics and justice are considered. There are also questions about how to achieve um, or better achieve context-sensitive responses and how to enable adaptation of these more standardized um, measures to particular local um, contexts. And in this regard, how to account for livelihood realities, how to incorporate more intersectoral thinking, such as for social protection provision to be part of, of epidemic response. And finally, questions about how to support lo local mobilization, different forms of, of local response, and indeed how to achieve more decentralized responses, both for protecting populations against disease, but also for mitigating these wider health and economic impacts. And this, I think, really requires some thinking by, by people who work in governance, political scientists, because one wants to avoid just a romanticization of, of bottom-up efforts, but equally, equally one needs a recognition of the need to think about governance strategies and indeed resourcing that could support such efforts and indeed provide a better balance between this tendency towards more top-down planning and indeed the support of, of um, local level responses. And I would argue that consideration of these questions really brings us back to the focus of this whole lecture series on leadership and the challenges that pandemics bring for leaders, challenges about how to, to take decisive action, how to organize responses, questions about governance, about trust, about um, local action and civic voice. And these are all issues that leaders need to weigh up in um, difficult times of pandemics in making decisions. And of course, um, in many quarters, these questions are being raised at the moment about leadership as the global league tables um, are appearing and as they're being um, analyzed. And as researchers, we also need to surface questions about forms of power and influence, commercial, political, and other that are, are standing to gain from these um, situations of crises like um, pandemics. And so finally, in conclusion, I, I just want to present four principles for rethinking epidemic preparedness and response. And these four principles are, are laid out in more detail in a forthcoming um, paper with um, several of my colleagues. And this paper is entitled Rethinking Preparedness and, and Response. So first of all, we speak about this principle of knowledge, the need for more interdisciplinary knowledge in science policy and advice, but also for incorporating a greater plurality of knowledge um, when planning responses, including experiential knowledge. Secondly, um, we speak about the importance of, of appreciating the uncertainties associated with epidemics. And in this regard, the kinds of institutions that can operate in a way that 
recognizes and responds to uncertainty, institutions that are more flexible and adaptive and don't just try to apply a one-size-fits-all um, approach to epidemics. Thirdly, we speak about the principle of time and, and the, the emergency temporality that so characterizes conventional approaches to epidemic response. And in contrast to that, we speak about the importance of, under, of appreciating the everyday uncertainties that um, people in, in the poorest parts of the world have to, to live with, how to take account of these intersecting precarities that I've spoken about and the sorts of slow emergency situations um, that are the sort of substrate in, on which acute emergencies might play out. And finally, the fourth principle is one of, of always bearing in mind questions of, of ethics and, and justice at all levels, thinking about livelihoods that need to be considered in epidemic response, but also um, how to think about different forms of solidarity that emerge and how to strengthen these. And this includes consideration of global solidarities. And um, in this pandemic, we've seen some extraordinary collaboration, for example, in, in science. But um, globally now, we're also seeing um, a reluctance to share intellectual, some intellectual property related to COVID-19 R&D as a global public good. And of course, we're also seeing um, a lot of vaccine nationalism and indeed um, the end of July of, of January, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, the director of the World Health Organization, warned that the lack of solidarity for equitable vaccine distribution constitutes a failure of leadership. He called it a catastrophic moral failure of our time. Much earlier in the epidemic, indeed in April 2020, the Indian author and activist Arundhati Roy wrote a, a very influential piece where she referred to the, this pandemic as a portal, or um, in her words, I quote, a gateway from one world to the next. And she said it offers us a chance to rethink. We can um, just return to some sort of normality, or we can imagine another kind of world. And, and that's how I want to conclude, really, because in future, um, the world global leadership could respond um, by only investing in more of the same in terms of epidemic preparedness and response, more investment um, in surveillance or an exclusive focus on technological solutions. And, and indeed, more thinking in these arenas is, is probably likely to be needed. But there also needs to be a balancing with investment in basic public health systems, but also real attention now to addressing entrenched health and structural um, inequalities, but also attention to um, the conditions, but also the responses of people and organizations on the ground who might be facing other crises, acute and chronic. And fundamentally, we need a clear recognition now that epidemic preparedness and response are not only technical, but deeply social and political processes. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.